welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Four cases this week, including some tough ones for non-citizens. But we'll start out, of course, with The Shining Light. And with the new year, what better time than to again thank the podcast's lovely, generous patrons, including new patrons, Forensic Psychology, Providing Psychological and Hardship Evaluations in Florida, and Immigration Psychology, Providing Psychological and Hardship Evaluations all throughout the United States. Thank you so much. And of course, shout out to the podcast's longer time patrons, Yuna Scott, Lorraine Marte, Dave Burton, Andre Boghossian, Fula Olubunmi, and Laura Kelly for their longtime support. And as many of you may know, by the way, Laura's got her own great podcast as well, called The Joyful Attorney. So check it out. And with that, I present to you, The Cases. First is Cabrera v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on January 6, 2022. This case is about continuances. Ms. Cabrera entered the United States from Mexico in 2014, lawfully as a B-2 visitor. She overstayed her visa, but a few months later, her boyfriend in the United States choked her and assaulted her in front of her young child. Ms. Cabrera assisted in the prosecution in South Carolina. The South Carolina police provided Ms. Cabrera with the certification necessary under immigration law for her to obtain U non-immigrant classification, known as a U-visa, certifying that she has, quote, been helpful, is being helpful, or is likely to be helpful to authorities investigating or prosecuting that crime, end quote. Certification in hand, Ms. Cabrera applied for a U-visa with USCIS. While it's complicated and while it's not really my general practice area, obtaining new non-immigrant status essentially puts a non-citizen on a path to becoming a lawful permanent resident, eventually. Less than a month before she applied with USCIS, however, DHS decided to place Ms. Cabrera in removal proceedings. Unclear how DHS became aware of her, and hopefully not because of her involvement in the criminal case against her boyfriend. 
Eventually appearing before an immigration judge in North Carolina, the IJ denied Ms. Cabrera a continuance to allow the U visa process to play itself out, and at the merits hearing, ordered her removed. Although this decision does not say, it's possible that the U visa application remains pending to this day. USCIS is not the fastest. The BIA affirmed the removal order, but the Fourth Circuit remanded, finding that the immigration judge erred in refusing a continuance, specifically that the IJ and the BIA committed an abuse of discretion. Indeed, said the court, in the 2012 decision matter of Sanchez-Sosa, the BIA itself held that, quote, there is a rebuttable presumption that a movement who has filed a prima facie approvable application for a U visa with USCIS will warrant a favorable exercise of discretion for a continuance for a reasonable period of time, end quote. Now, some IJs have read the more recent matter of LNY as limiting that principle, but here the Fourth Circuit reads LNY and also Attorney General Sessions' decision in a matter of LARB, as reaffirming that principle. That is, where a collateral relief application is pending that will materially affect removal proceedings, and that application is prima facie approvable, an IJ should generally grant reasonable continuances. Here, the BIA abused its discretion because it relied solely on secondary factors to consider whether a continuance was warranted namely that DHS opposed the motion, and that Ms. Cabrera could still receive a U-visa, even if ordered removed. The BIA erred by not giving any weight, much less rebuttably presumptive weight, to the fact that she was prima facie eligible for the U-visa with the South Carolina Police Certificate. That fact alone should have factored in heavily into the BIA's analysis. The Fourth Circuit also reviewed the IJ's decision directly because the record was a bit unclear on whether the BIA had simply adopted the IJ's analysis or conducted its own analysis. And the Fourth Circuit found that there, too, an abuse of discretion had occurred. And actually, the IJ's may have been more egregious than the BIA's, because the IJ recognized that there was a, quote, significant probability, end quote, that USCIS would grant the U visa, but then simply disregarded that fact. Under the law, it doesn't really matter, as the IJ reasoned, that only USCIS can actually grant new visas, because the BIA said in 2012, again, matter of Sanchez-Sosa, that a prima facie valid U visa should generally result in a continuance. Also, the fact that the regulations permit a U visa recipient to cancel a final order of removal clearly shows that the collateral relief sought, a U visa, is material to removal proceedings. The Fourth Circuit explained that while secondary considerations, such as administrative efficiency, can be considered when IJs decide whether to grant a continuance, they are just that, secondary. And some things actually can't ever be considered. Quote, An IJ could not hold, as the IJ did here, that the fact that Ms. Cabrera could seek a stay of deportation from DHS weighed against a continuance. End quote. Put another way, Non-citizens can't be denied continuances based on an IJ's belief that a removal order isn't that big of a deal. At the end of the day, the continuance analysis is governed pretty much by matter of Sanchez-Sosa, so remember it. Congratulations, Melody Boosie and Mark Devine for Petitioner. Two more things. First, matter of LABR. That decision was clearly Attorney General Sessions' initial attempt to make it more difficult for non-citizens in removal proceedings to obtain continuances. But I don't know. 
I kind of like matter of LABR. First, as the Fourth Circuit says here, it's really consistent with the favorable holding in matter of Sanchez Sosa. But also, as I believe I've mentioned before, the three case examples used by Attorney General Sessions in LABR, where Attorney General Sessions explained that a continuance would not be warranted, are so absurd that they are very easy to distinguish from your case to show that Attorney General Sessions did not have cases like your clients in mind in matter of LABR. I believe one of the examples might have even involved like 20 prior continuances. So one might argue. Finally, and although the Fourth Circuit's decision doesn't touch on it here, there's an argument that this decision may apply to other collateral actions, such as state court motions to vacate a non-citizen's disqualifying conviction that are running parallel with removal proceedings. Again, the quote from matter of LABR itself is that, quote, the principal focus should be on the likelihood that the collateral relief will be granted and will materially affect the outcome of the removal proceedings, end quote. So says Attorney General Sessions. And so, a prima facie approvable matter of Pickering compliant motion to vacate a conviction could appear to meet that standard. Now watch out, the BIA may have addressed a similar argument in the 2018 decision matter of J.M. Acosta, a case about the finality of criminal convictions. But then again, maybe it didn't and the Fourth Circuit relies upon three BIA and Attorney General decisions in this case. And those decisions, like the Fourth Circuit's here, say what they say about collateral relief and continuances generally. And that is Cabrera v. Garland. Sticking with the Fourth Circuit, we have Herrera Martinez v. Garland, published on January 5th, 2022. This case is mainly about particular social groups, particularly particularity. Mr. Herrera Martinez is from Honduras, where he owned a successful restaurant and billiards bar. Because of that success, drug traffickers sought to use him to traffic, you guessed it, drugs. He refused and reported it all to police, who reported it to the drug traffickers, who then kidnapped, beat, and threatened to murder Mr. Herrera Martinez. He went into hiding elsewhere in Honduras, but when he learned that the drug traffickers had placed a hit on him, he fled to the United States. He was placed in removal proceedings but did not attend his final hearing and so was ordered removed in absentia and was physically removed back to Honduras. He returned, had the final order reinstated, but passed his reasonable fear interview and was placed in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. In court, he testified to his experience in Honduras and that the drug traffickers had killed his business partner many years ago. He also submitted affidavits from his family and the mother of his children, corroborating his story in Honduras. The mother of his children submitted an affidavit that said that she herself had been targeted by the drug traffickers in an effort, apparently, to get to Mr. Herrera Martinez. The IJ did not make an adverse credibility finding, but got close but in any event held that Mr. Herrera Martinez failed to meet his burden to establish that he'd more likely than not be persecuted on account of a protected ground, as withholding of removal requires. The IJ also denied protection under the Convention Against Torture. Now, a lot of the IJ's withholding of removal analysis rested on the rejection of Mr. Herrera Martinez's various particular social groups, but the IJ failed to analyze whether Mr. Herrera Martinez suffered or feared harm on account of one other group that he had stated, quote, prosecution witnesses, end quote. And so the BIA remanded proceedings. 
On remand, the IJ found that actually, Mr. Herrera-Martinez wasn't credible, and also, the particular social group of prosecution witnesses was not cognizable. The BIA then affirmed, as did the Fourth Circuit. Specifically, the Fourth Circuit agreed with the BIA that the, quote, social group prosecution witnesses, at least as proposed by Mr. Herrera-Martinez, is not particular, end quote. So that's a bit of a qualified holding. But it's also no small deal, because this decision is written by Judge Quattlebaum, who also authored the Amaya decision last year and discussed on episode 40 of the podcast, which appeared to have instituted a less onerous particularity requirement than that applied by the BIA and some other circuits. So particularity is generally easier to satisfy in the Fourth Circuit. And yet, the court held that the group Prosecution Witnesses doesn't meet the particularity standard, even under Amaya, in this case. And that's because particularity still requires that the proposed groups have limits, and that they not be, quote, amorphous, end quote. While Amaya instructs that the analysis regards mostly the words used to describe the group, and doesn't mandate, say, a dive into how the group is understood in the target society, an analysis that's more appropriate for social distinction, the group prosecution witnesses still didn't meet the standard here. Sure, said the court, in the 2011 decision Crespin Valideris, the Fourth Circuit recognized that the particular social group of, quote, family members of those who actively oppose gangs in El Salvador by agreeing to be prosecutorial witnesses, end quote, was particular and is cognizable. But the panel here believes that Crespin Valadares was limited, and therefore more particular, by the fact that the group included only family members of prosecution witnesses, and also the decision appeared to rely on the fact that the witnesses only cooperated publicly. Also since then, some Fourth Circuit judges have taken shots at Crespin Valadares. And so then, addressing the issue head-on, the Fourth Circuit held that, quote, without any limitations, the group prosecution witnesses has no clear boundaries and thus fails for lack of particularity, end quote. This is due in part to the broad and varied definitions of the word witnesses and prosecution. So stay away from using words like these that have, quote, multiple meanings, end quote. Or put another way, and as the Fourth Circuit recognizes, make your particular social group more like Crespin Valadares, the one used in the Ninth Circuit's Henriquez-Rivas decision, or the Third Circuit's in Guzman-Oriana, and less like Mr. Herrera-Martinez's here. The Fourth Circuit reads the BIA's 2021 decision in a matter of HLSA as similarly finding that the broad term of prosecution witnesses is not particular enough. But note, the Fourth Circuit reads matter of HLSA as permitting a similar particular social group if limited with additional descriptive words, such as witnesses that testify or agree to testify publicly, for example. So Mr. Herrera-Martinez did not receive withholding of removal under the INA. So then turning to Convention Against Torture Protection, which, unlike withholding, doesn't require a nexus to a protected ground, the Fourth Circuit affirmed the IJ and BIA's denial. Most of that came down to the adverse credibility finding. The Fourth Circuit found the finding appropriate and so disregarded most of Mr. Herrera-Martinez's testimony and evidence. And some of the reasons that the Fourth Circuit affirmed the adverse credibility finding was, for example, that Mr. Herrera-Martinez, quote, did not mention suffering physical harm at the hands of the narco-traffickers in either of his reasonable fear interview or his initial I-589, but did testify about it during his hearing, end quote. So that's an omission. 
and he also had some inconsistencies in his testimony regarding dates and locations of key events. The other independent evidence that he submitted that did not rely upon his testimony or credibility, even the news articles about his business partner being murdered many years ago, did not meet his burden under the Convention Against Torture by itself, and so Mr. Herrera-Martinez did not succeed. And that is Herrera-Martinez v. Garland. Next is Avias Tavera v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on January 4th, 2022. This case is about particularly serious crimes and res judicata. Mr. Avias Tavera is from Mexico and has lived in the United States without authorization since 1988. Well, off and on. For reasons unexplained, it appears he was subject to a final order of deportation or removal, again unclear, since 1994 or maybe 2000, but either way, he received a final order. He was physically removed following some assault convictions in 2004, and in 2013, he re-entered the United States without authorization. It would appear that DHS served him with a notice to appear instead of reinstating his final order of removal, and in removal proceedings, an IJ denied his application for asylum and related relief. He was removed again. He came to the border in 2017 and expressed a fear of return again. It would appear that ICE paroled him into the United States for removal proceedings, reserved him with a notice to appear again, and that an immigration judge again denied his application for asylum and related relief. He returned again, and it would appear that the prior final order was reinstated, he expressed a fear of returning to Mexico, passed his reasonable fear interview, and so was replaced in withholding-only proceedings before an immigration judge. Due to his criminal history, however, he was deemed eligible only for deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Now, Mr. Avias Tavera also has severe mental health issues, including signs of schizophrenia. For this reason, his CAT application and evidence wasn't very specific. Nevertheless, he had a lot of people testify at his hearing, although not so much, it appears, on conditions in Mexico. As you can see, I'm being careful with my words. I don't want to assume anything with these cases, and in this case, some details seem to be missing. At the end of the day, the IJ and BIA denied deferral of removal under the CAT, and it was petitioned for review to the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA. First, the Fifth Circuit addressed the particularly serious crime finding. See, apparently, in one of the prior proceedings in 2015, an IJ determined that Mr. Avias Tavera's assault conviction was not a particularly serious crime that barred him from asylum and withholding. But the last IJ in 2019 reconsidered that holding and found that it was a particularly serious crime. The issue is therefore about res judicata, or issue preclusion. Usually, quote, a final decision by an immigration judge has a preclusive effect on future litigation and agency decisions, end quote. And that would appear to include USCIS too, by the way. And according to the Fifth Circuit, it would have barred the second IJ from reconsidering the particularly serious crime issue, but for one thing. In the 2019 decision, United States v. Garcia Cantu decided well after that initial 2015 determination, the Fifth Circuit held, apparently, that this exact assault statute, Texas Assault Family Violence, is a crime of violence aggravated felony. And it appears that United States v. Garcia Cantu is quite harsh for assault crimes and the crime of violence definition at 18 U.S.C. section 16A, 
So check out that case if you've got the issue in the Fifth Circuit to make sure that you've got the law right. More on that in a bit, though. The Fifth Circuit did not address Mr. Avias Tavera's argument that the Supreme Court's subsequent decision in Borden v. United States, discussed on episode 59 of the podcast, changes the analysis, because the Fifth Circuit deemed the argument waived in this case. Again, more on that in a minute. Returning to the issues actually decided, and not for nothing, the Fifth Circuit held that it had jurisdiction to determine whether the IJ and BIA got it right regarding whether Mr. Avias Tavera's crime was indeed particularly serious for withholding purposes. After all, it would appear that, because Mr. Avias Tavera wasn't sentenced to a term of imprisonment of at least five years, his conviction isn't per se a particularly serious crime for withholding of removal purposes, even if it's an aggravated felony. But the Fifth Circuit did not agree with Mr. Avias Tavares' arguments that the BIA got the analysis wrong. Finally, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the denial of cat deferral on the merits, holding that even if Mr. Avias Tavera had serious mental health issues, he did not show, quote, that he would more likely than not be institutionalized if he was returned to Mexico, end quote, or that he'd be intentionally tortured therein. So the Fifth Circuit dismissed the petition for review. More you say? Remember how I said the panel refused to address the Bourdain issue because it deemed the argument waived? Well, a few days later, in the short decision USA v. Fuentes Rodriguez regarding a Section 1326 illegal reentry conviction, the Fifth Circuit briefly addressed the issue because it had to because the Supreme Court remanded the case in light of Bourdain. And in Fuentes Rodriguez, the Fifth Circuit stated, quote, The parties agree that, in light of Bourdain, Fuentes Rodriguez should not have been sentenced under Section 1326b2 because Texas's family violence assault can be committed recklessly, end quote. The court in Fuentes Rodriguez was reviewing Texas Penal Code Section 22.01a1, which appears to be the same statute at issue in the case that I'm currently reviewing, Avias Tavera. And I say appears because the Avias Tavera court didn't actually expressly cite any statute. The Fuentes Rodriguez court also appears to implicitly recognize that Bourdain fatally undermined Garcia Cantu, the case relied upon heavily in this decision. But another way, it appears that much of Avias Tavera may have become bad law before I could even summarize the decision on the podcast. Never a dull moment. Next, and while this decision is not great for race judicata, it does rely on the logic that a material change in law can undermine a previously final decision made by an IJ. Sounds like a motion to reopen argument to me. And while of course there'd be much more to it, I'm confident that with a little creativity, this case can support such an argument in the Fifth Circuit. Finally, and while on the topic of the Fifth, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that the court amended its Parada Oriana v. Garland decision, discussed on episode 67 of the pod, to hold that it would not be readdressing that decision in light of Rodriguez v. Garland, because the petitioner had failed to preserve the issue. That is, it wouldn't be deciding whether Ms. Parada Oriana wins her motion to reopen based on a now pretty legit argument that the case initiating NTA was deficient. A further reminder to keep making deficient NTA arguments, if for no other reason than to preserve it, if and when case law changes. And of course, check out episode 67 for KKTP attorney Liz Montano's excellent summary of the issues that the Fifth Circuit did address in August. And that is Avias Tavera v. Garland. 
Finally, we come to Matua v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on January 5, 2022. This case is about adjustment of status and discretion. Mr. Matua is from Kenya and entered the United States as a business visitor in 2006. He did not depart as his visa mandated, and two years later he married a U.S. citizen. Because he entered lawfully, he had a path to adjust to LPR status, provided that he warranted it as a matter of discretion and that he was in a valid marriage, of course. But he didn't apply to adjust status for 10 years, for reasons unexplained. By that point, 2018, he had been charged with criminal sexual conduct with a child in the second degree based on an allegation made by his own sister-in-law regarding his niece. But, innocent until proven guilty, right? And Mr. Matua went to trial and won. The jury didn't convict, and the prosecution dismissed the case. Before all that happened, USCIS denied adjustment due to the pending charges, and after the state dismissed the criminal charge, the state transferred Mr. Matua to DHS custody for removal proceedings as a visa overstay. In immigration court, he again applied to adjust LPR status, presumably because at some point, USCIS must have approved the I-130 petition based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen. Now, adjustment of status is discretionary. Mr. Matua and his wife testified to his good character and that he didn't commit the crime. But the IJ held that the record indicated that there was, quote, reason to believe, end quote, that he did commit the crime, and that he previously violated U.S. immigration law because he overstayed. So the immigration judge denied adjustment of status as a matter of discretion. On appeal, the BIA held that the IJ properly held Mr. Matua to the not-so-burdensome, quote, preponderance of the evidence, end quote, standard when adjudicating his discretionary adjustment eligibility. Then, reviewing the issue de novo, as the BIA does with discretion, the BIA agreed that Mr. Matua didn't warrant adjustment of status. It noted in particular that the police report and medical records from the sexual assault incident either supported or didn't undercut a conclusion that the crime was committed by Mr. Matua. Very different burdens from criminal court, at least when you're talking about discretionary relief from removal. And according to the 11th Circuit, by the way, 1990s BIA case law permits it to consider alleged criminal conduct in its discretionary analysis, even if the conduct did not result in conviction. Mr. Matua made a bunch of interesting arguments on petition for review that, before the 11th Circuit's Patel decision, may have been reviewed. But we are currently PP, or post-Patel. Possibly the Supreme Court will overturn Patel this term, and we will be PPP. But for now, PP. And post-Patel, the 11th Circuit held that it did not have jurisdiction to review the adjustment of status denial. The 11th Circuit then also rejected Mr. Matua's arguments, in the alternative, I guess. First, that the IJ held him to a higher standard of review than adjustment of status allows. The IJ didn't, the 11th Circuit held. The court also held that the BIA properly applied clear error review to the factual finding of whether there was reason to believe Mr. Matua committed a crime, and then de novo review regarding whether, altogether, he warranted discretionary relief. Ah, standards of review. The 11th Circuit continued and held that the BIA properly declined to give administrative notice of the transcript of the underlying criminal proceedings. For reasons unexplained, it appears that the criminal transcript was not submitted before the IJ, but that Mr. Matua believed it helped his case and attempted to have the BIA take administrative notice of the transcript on appeal. 
And while the BIA can take administrative notice of certain limited documents for the first time on appeal, the BIA can't engage in fact-finding for the first time on appeal. Although an official court transcript is indeed something that the BIA can take administrative notice of, the factual deductions therein, that is, what the transcript indicated, is something that the 11th Circuit held the BIA cannot do for the first time on appeal, because it's fact-finding. The IJ needed to do it first, so according to the 11th Circuit, the BIA properly declined to take administrative notice of the criminal transcript. Finally, according to the court, nothing requires, as Mr. Matua argued, the BIA to resolve his case by a three-member panel, rather than a one-member panel, as it did. So Mr. Matua did not succeed. One more thing before I let y'all go. The 11th Circuit stated in this decision that it was not aware of authority requiring a preponderance of the evidence standard of proof for discretionary adjustment of status determinations. But I believe the case law might be matter of awry, whereby, quote, generally, favorable factors such as family ties, hardship, length of residence in the United States, etc., will be considered as countervailing factors meriting favorable exercise of administrative discretion, end quote. Or perhaps the 2010 AAO decision matter of Chawith, whereby, quote, except where a different standard is specified by law, a petitioner or applicant in administrative immigration proceedings must prove, by a preponderance of evidence, that he or she is eligible for the benefits sought, end quote. And that is Matua, the U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.